Hi, I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of domestic terrorism. Welcome back, everybody. Are you going to wave back. at me? Sorry. I saw, a little, I saw a little hand motion. That was <laughs> probably from my head me moving down or? <laughs> yeah. For those that don't, we record this on Zoom. So, of course, Zoom keeps adding some really great like little additions on to every update. And one of them is that if you raise your hand, a little cartoon hand jumps up to get yes. the <laughs> attention of the host. So yeah, you did that the other day when we were doing a guest interview. <laughs> yeah. I was just doing my big dramatic jazz hands as I talk and it thought well, I was trying to ask a question. There you go. Absolutely. So we're here with episode 150. Wow. LA not so confidential, 150 episodes, six and a half years, 50 live streams. So weird. There and there's still more content to cover. <laughs> yeah. It's never ending. It's never ending. And we keep getting great suggestions from our audience. So thank you. I know we have a good episode for you today that is going to tie in nicely with many others that we've done. So we're just carving out another little section. But before that, what was our last episode? Episode 149 was our documentary review of the Peacock docuseries Menendez plus Menudo Boys Betrayed. And this is a relatively new documentary that has sparked a newfound interest in the fairness of the criminal justice system in terms of the Menendez brothers life sentence. This is really the story, though, of seeking justice for Roy Rossello, a former member of the Puerto Rican boy band Menudo, who was severely abused by the group manager and, as he alleges in this documentary, Jose Menendez, the father of Lyle and Eric. This is certainly a courageous journey in seeking justice, even after many years and much healing. Both Dr. Shiloh and I highly recommend this series. Yeah, it, it, is, it is a real roller coaster. So let's introduce this topic and get some perspective. In 2017, we saw the highest number of fatalities and terrorist attacks since 2001. That is very, very significant. And in 2019, there were 68 terrorist attacks in the United States. This was a significant increase from the 18 terrorist attacks that just occurred about a decade earlier in 2008. And since September 11th, 2001, most terror acts committed on United States soil were perpetrated by, surprise, surprise, U.S. born citizens. I don't think that that stays at the forefront of this issue enough. No, That's why we're doing not. this episode. Because <laughs> they always want to turn it into something racial or religious. And that is just not the case with many of these. So like I said at the top, you know, we have touched on many different areas having to do with mass casualty events and terrorism and organizations and people who act out due to their grievances, due to their belief systems. And so we really wanted to hone in on domestic terrorism because we've talked about it in a couple different ways. We've talked about it in a couple other episodes. We did a live stream breaking down some typologies of domestic violence extremists, which we will do in today's episode as well. But this has always been a big area of interest for me. When I was a police officer, an ancillary job that I had while working patrol was as the department's terrorism liaison officer, which meant I was a conduit between my department and the local FBI field office regarding any matters that had to possibly do with terrorism, right? So post 9-11, it was like, see something, say something sort of mantra. So certainly 
the feds were saying, hey, we're relying on these smaller agencies that if you see something that looks weird in your little neighborhood, you know, we want to train up certain officers to have specialized experience and training to be able to take back to your officers, do trainings. You can be the person that they sort of ask about if they, or ask, you know, if this is something they should be worried about. And then I would determine if that then goes on to be reported to the FBI. But I just found it endlessly fascinating with all the training I was exposed to during that time. Mentors that I learned from that had worked overseas and in the CIA and counterterrorism teams. It just was very, very interesting. And I think when we look at it on our home soil and how folks can turn against our government in such a an extreme way to where they feel like violence is the answer I think it fits nicely with with what we talk about a lot on this show. So terrorism is a big word and it can mean many, many different things. So today we're going to look at a few overviews of the phenomenon and then boil it down to our focus on domestic terrorism, give you, of course, a really big case study towards the end and talk about some other, I don't know, areas in which people are exploring. Does terrorism fit for certain organizations? So yeah, this is a longer episode, just giving you a heads up as you probably can already see on the indicator as the podcast pop up. So don't feel bad if you need to take a break and break this up into three different days because it's pretty dense. And, you know, a lot of this may sound familiar to our longer term listeners because we have lightly touched on some of the aspects of domestic violence, extremist behavior in our live streams. And we've also quickly reviewed some of these notions in in their connection or nexus to mass violence episodes. So we wanted to bring all of this together in today's exploration of terrorism that happens on our own soil and it's perpetrated by U.S. citizens, many of whom think that they are actually exhibiting themselves as patriots when they do it. Yes, good point, good point. Our trigger warnings for today, murder and injury by firearms and explosive devices, as well as the death of young children in some of these incidents. And then we're going to be touching on some military combat-related deaths and incidents as well. So according to the FBI, terrorism is still split into two overarching categories, and those would be international terrorism and domestic terrorism. So international is defined by violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups who are inspired by or associated with designated foreign terrorist organizations or nations, which would be state sponsored. So not sort of this vacuous or sort of ephemeral somebody acting out or a couple of people getting together. This is foreign terrorist organizations that are very well organized and structured. So then on the other side, we have domestic which is violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences, such as those like political, religious, social, racial, or, and in some extreme examples, environmental nature. And to get a little more specific, the FBI further defines domestic terrorism as, and this is a quote, activities involving acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state that are appearing to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, influence the policy of government by intimidation or coercion, or affect the conduct of the government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occurs primarily within the jurisdiction of the U.S. 
very specific, very explanatory. So there's a lot that fits into that. I mean, the assassination of presidents falls into this category. You know, we don't often think of those as domestic terrorism events. And certainly we've had a couple of those in our history. The FBI also asserts that terrorism as we know it has evolved beyond what we knew before 9-11. And Dr. Scott and I would argue that it has evolved eons since 9-11. Certainly. According to the FBI, the belief that two significant factors have contributed to the evolution of the terrorism threat on both the international and domestic fronts are as follows. So the first is lone offenders. This is when terrorist threats have evolved from large group conspiracies or movements toward lone offender attacks. So remember in those definitions, it said that people just simply had to be inspired by. So these individuals often radicalize online now and mobilized to violence quickly without a clear group affiliation or really any guidance, as horrible as that might sound. These individuals are challenging to identify, investigate, and disrupt. And the FBI heavily relies on partnerships and tips from the public to identify and thwart these attacks because these are people really under the radar doing their own thing in their own homes. These are the outliers, right? Yeah. So the, the, we, and thank goodness we're getting away from lone wolf attacker, oh, you know, gosh. because that sort of connotes like a, a sexiness to it. I mm-hmm. think there's a meme going around that we should talk about single perpetrators as like the single small dicks or something like that. Yeah, like right? give it a less sexy or give it a more <laughs> pejorative name. So it doesn't encourage people to engage in this behavior. So also moving on to the uh, fronts that you were outlining, we have the internet and social media. So international and domestic violent extremists have developed a very extensive presence on the internet through messaging platforms, using online images, videos, and publications. And all of these modalities facilitate these groups' ability to radicalize and then recruit individuals who are open or receptive to their extremist messaging. It's really, really a complex and very, very well thought out grooming situation. Social media has also allowed both international and domestic terrorists to gain literally unprecedented virtual access to people living in the U.S. in an effort to enable homeland attacks. For instance, the Islamic State of Iraq and Asha Sham ISIS in particular encourages sympathizers to carry out simple attacks wherever they're located, or to travel to ISIS-held territories in Iraq and Syria and join its ranks as foreign fighters. And there's so many amazing stories of how that just does not work out really well for anybody stupid enough to fall for that. It really does not work out. This message has resonated with supporters in the U.S. and abroad, unfortunately. Yeah. So the internet has been a huge part of the evolution of looking at radicalization and extremism from, you know, those days when I was, you know, gosh, when did I, I came on the job in law enforcement? 2002? So it wasn't that long after 9-11. And when you know, I, I became a terrorism liaison officer. At first, it was just trainings on kind of these YouTube videos. It was like propaganda and trying to recruit people from all over the world to join these these organizations from other parts of the world. But yeah, I mean, today it's just taken on sort of what we see with the, you know, how QAnon sort of came to mm-hmm. rise up. We'll talk later at the end today about like, well, where do incels fit in all of this? So it could be recruitment, like just targeted recruitment, or it can just serve as this echo chamber of misinformation. So we're quite familiar with the terrorist event after it happens and all of the criminal justice system logistics that come with that. But there's also this term of 
the domestic terrorism plot, which the FBI defines as a combination of criminal activity and planning that collectively reflect steps towards criminal action in furtherance of a domestic political or social goal. Plots and carrying out of these acts are generally perpetrated by individuals who we call domestic violent extremists, DVEs, and they can be categorized into these five different typologies. So number one is racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. So ideological agendas that are derived from a bias, they're often related to a race or ethnicity, and they're held by the actor against others, including a given specific population group. And one example of this, a horrific example of this is the Charleston church shooting. It's a mass shooting that occurred on June 17th, 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina. And in this horrific event, nine African-American parishioners were killed during a Bible study at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Among those people who were killed was the senior pastor, State Senator Clementa C. Pickney, and three victims survived. The church is one of the oldest Black churches in the United States, and it has long been a center for organizing events that are related to civil rights. The morning after the attack, police arrested the shooter. The 21-year-old white supremacist had attended the Bible study before he committed the shooting. He was found to have targeted members of this church because of its historical significance and stature in the community. Or it could be something like this event. So on March 23rd of 2021, a U.S. district judge sentenced 36-year-old Carlos Hernandez to 192 months in federal prison for the firebombing of African-American homes in a housing development in Boyle Heights which is here in Los Angeles. And this occurred back in May of 2014. So a long time before you can see how slow the wheels of justice move, especially with a federal case that rises to the level of domestic terrorism. Hernandez had been a senior member of the Big Hazard Street Gang, an organized group of members who targeted four residences with the intent to force the Black families to move away. These types of threats, specifically driven by a belief that the superiority of the white race or, you know, put in whatever race or ethnic group that you can fill in that blank with, really has been at the top of the FBI's priority list throughout just 2022. If we go back and look at sort of the breakdowns on who they're focusing on, superiority, white supremacy is still number one on their radar when it comes to domestic terrorism incidents. So the FBI maintains that racially motivated terrorism continues to pose the most threat when it comes to lethal and non-lethal violence against the groups that they oppose. Additionally, this is one of the categories where the internet has very clearly perpetuated the call to violence in terms, of course, social media, encrypted forums, all of these ways in which people can congregate online. So the second category would be animal rights or environmental violent extremists. So these individuals are seeking to end or mitigate perceived cruelty, harm, or exploitation of animals or perceived destruction of natural resources or the environment, also known in that particular example as eco-terrorism. So an example of this might be this particular incident on the night of January 18th, 1982. Against a background of ongoing protest, a rocket-propelled grenade attack was launched against Super Phoenix SPX, a prototype nuclear power station on the banks of the Rhone River in France. Five rockets in total were launched. Two rockets hit and caused minor damage to the reinforced concrete outer shell, missing the reactor's empty core. Initially, there were no claims of responsibility, but on May 8, 2003, nearly 20 years later, Chaim Nissim, who in 1985 was elected to the Geneva Cantonal Legislature for the Swiss Green Party, admitted to carrying out the attack. 
He claimed that the weapons were obtained from Carlos the Jackal, major character in world history via a Belgian terrorist organization. Interesting about that case. I don't want to stop and give too much commentary because we've got so much to do, but the idea that you would be making a case against a nuclear reactor, which of course there are legitimate concerns to discuss, but you're going to bomb it. Mm, How's that going to turn out? Yeah. You know, potentially causing an an even more huge ecological disaster. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be something that big and dramatic either. I mean, here's an example from the States. And in 2003, right here in Southern California, in the middle of the night, 20, at the time, brand new Hummer H2s worth about $50,000 a piece were set on fire and destroyed at a car dealership. And this was a part of a whole wave of vandalism in which 50 other vehicles had been damaged at the same dealership over a period of time. And certainly the investigators came to the determination that this was an eco-terrorism group who was resorting to arson and property destruction to further their agenda against the Hummers. It's very interesting because that's, you know, 20 years ago now. And there was a period of time here in Southern California where you saw Hummers everywhere. True. It was the new jacked up truck. It was the new Uber masculine thing. Yeah. And everybody hated it. Like everybody was like, who is that dick driving the Hummer? (laughs) And you saw it kind of fade away. But this was right at that time where they weren't popular. I mean, they were just they're not particularly pleasant things to look at anyway. And you always saw the person driving. It was in no means any kind of person that looked like they had an outdoor life or any need for a Hummer. So <laughs> is this where I tell you that I did test drive an H2, the smaller I'm one? <laughs> not surprised. There you go. And I'm yeah. so happy that you didn't choose it. There you go. There's so many like little points, you know, just little pieces in this episode as I'm writing them. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Like I could, <laughs> es- I could escape the, you know, my neighborhood when the apocalypse happens in, an, in my H2 and pack yeah. lots of shit in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you keep thinking that you're going to be the one that gets away. I'm just going to be oh. I'm going to be drinking really good drinks and waiting for the zombie chomp and that's it. Oh man, I'm the last <laughs> woman standing. Sorry to hear that, Dr. Scott. <laughs> Ready to give up. <laughs> aliens, take us away. Come on, the aliens were just announced this week. Come on. Oh gosh, I know. I did a TikTok about that. <laughs> oh, great. So, the next category, anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists. Militia, which is, of course, a very general term for those who take overt steps to violently, to violently resist or overthrow the U.S. government in support of their belief that the U.S. government is purposefully exceeding its constitutional authority and is trying to establish a totalitarian regime. They oppose all forms of capitalism, corporate globalization, and governing institutions, and which they perceive are harmful to society. Very fascinating philosophy that is, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. But Which is know, also I, so vague. Like, what are you going to consider harmful to society? And how are you defining that? <laughs> right. And then what is society going to be at this point? But, you right. know, there's, that's, there's also a, a mindset that comes with that particular belief system. And then some of our favorites, because they make for fascinating and somewhat entertaining reels and TikToks, Mm -hmm. the sovereign citizens. Sovereign citizens believe that they are immune from government authority and laws. As of yet, to common knowledge, they have not yet been involved in mass casualty events, but their acting out has ranged from just messing up the legal system in court with ridiculous stunts, Yeah, except that they're not stunts. 
like we would view it almost as something from jackass. They believe what they're doing. They walk in thinking that they can talk to a judge the way that they talk to a judge. Yeah, there's that. But then they've also found these like major loopholes in the system where they can file paperwork in the court and fuck up people's lives just to seek revenge on them. Right. And it's well, they're they're loopholes. But the only reason they're loopholes is because your ideology has found a way Mm-hmm. to to open that up like it's yeah. like anybody with common sense working within the structure but yeah it's it's fascinating stuff to watch these people being pulled over and they have oh like their own hand-drawn license Licensed. plates and they are not driving they are traveling just yes. like they have a whole different uh vocabulary that they use but they have been involved in the murder of multiple law enforcement officers when pulled over or approached So that is a big deal. And there's at least one to two incidents that are thought to be to this day to be calculated ambushes, which means they, this was planned to design a trap. So that that's really the only example so far of them engaging in really extreme criminal activity, but Mm -hmm. they, there is the eye on them by the government right now because they seem to be ramping up their actions. Yeah, absolutely. So the fourth category is abortion-related violent extremists. So this is where their ideological agendas are in support of either pro-life or pro-choice beliefs to the extreme. Eric Rudolph is a great example of this. So he was the man responsible for the 1996 Atlanta bombings during the Olympics. And Rudolph confessed to other bombings, which were driven by his opposition to the legalization of abortion and what he called aberrant sexual behavior. So Rudolph issued this rambling 11-page statement after he ended up pleading guilty in Alabama and Georgia, declaring, quote, abortion is murder. And when the regime in Washington legalized, sanctioned and legitimized this practice, they forfeited their legitimacy and moral authority to govern. So two of his attacks involved women's clinics, one in the Atlanta, Georgia suburb of Sandy Springs, and that was in January of 1997. The other in Birmingham, Alabama in January of 1998. Six people were wounded in the Sandy Springs blast. Off-duty policeman Robert Sanderson, 35, was killed. And 41-year-old nurse Emily Lyons lost an eye and suffered other injuries in the Birmingham blast. Rudolph also bombed a lesbian nightclub in Atlanta in February 1997, an attack in which five people were wounded. Fortunately, nobody died. But again, in his statements, he said that while homosexual does not pose a threat when kept in private, the attempt to force society to accept and recognize this behavior should be met with force if necessary. So you can see where this guy's head is at on some of these issues, but you know, he certainly as a man thought he had to take it upon himself to teach certain people lessons because the government wasn't doing a good enough job. And then we have our catch-all last category, which is just as the FBI terms, all other domestic terrorist threats. And this could be ideological agendas that are not otherwise defined in any of the other categories, which can include personal grievances and beliefs with potential bias related to many different things, including religion, gender, or sexual orientation. So before we really kind of start down the steps of looking at some of these offenders more closely, I did want to refer back to something that was more of a commentary on terrorism at large, international terrorism. But I think that it plays a big part in world culture and certainly in male-dominated world culture. There was an either an FBI, a female FBI agent, retired or CIA agent, 
retired, who was filmed in an interview several years ago, and she made like a really great point. She said that in interviewing perpetrators of terrorist acts, particularly a foreign one, she said, you know, it really opens your eyes when the person sitting across the table from you says, look at your movies. Every movie you have is Star Wars, is Mm -hmm. Harry Potter, is this, is that it's about the little person who has to save everyone else against an oppressive society. So this is what you export. And yet you now criticize us for doing exactly what we see as a problem. We see that your government does this to us, your government does that. So it, it there is a parallel drawn that these individuals, and I'm not justifying any of their acts whatsoever, but if you have that sense of entitlement and that something has been taken away from you, which we're going to talk about in depth a little bit later, mm-hmm. that's really going to lay for an immersion, a marinade that's going to end up in some toxic behavior and belief systems. But let's get back on course with looking at some of these offenders more closely. I want to take a few moments to reiterate some research that we used in an earlier live stream episode on domestic terrorism. So the U.S. Department of Homeland Security released a report entitled Homeland Threat Assessment in October 2020. And it stated that, quote, racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, white supremacist extremists, WSEs, will remain the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. Now, it's three solid years later, mm-hmm. and clearly the assertions made in this report are unfortunately holding up. So in crunching the numbers on these perpetrators, there emerges three solid profile points. The, per- the perpetrators are male, white, and adhere to or identify with white supremacist ideologies. That's the majority of what's going down here. So Dr. Michael Kimmel, a sociologist at Stony Brook University, he is an award-winning and world-renowned expert on gender and masculinity. Highly, highly recommend those books. He's authored Manhood in America, Angry White Men, The Politics of Manhood, The Gendered Society, and his bestseller, Guyland, The Perilous World Where Boys Become Men. So look, with a pedigree like that, I'm going to defer to his expertise. I'm going to encourage everyone to please look at some of his writings. The guy's just a genius. But we pulled some of his bullet points from his research. And this is what he has to say. There will be no mitigating the risk from the power that these ideologue perpetrators have unless you acknowledge all those three factors. Again, those being male, white, and white supremacist. That is the three-legged prong or the the triangle of the foundation Mm -hmm. of these actors. Dr. Kimmel also engaged in extensive interviews with former extremists, and he identified the main driving factors that led them to these ideologies. And they boil down to the intersection of prominent issues such as the individual's economic challenges and several psychological factors. Dr. Kimmel goes on to assert that these perpetrators believe that something has been taken from them and that they were entitled to that thing that has been taken away from them and the things that they think they deserved have them taken away from them and it was then given to people who don't deserve it like immigrants gays women so we've discussed the significant influence that reactance theory has on individuals in several of our previous episodes, including our discussions on incels. And when Dr. Shiloh and I do presentations in large audiences, I think one of the ones last year was for the California Hostage Negotiators Association. Mm -hmm. You know, I walked in front of somebody's uh, desk and I took the hotel pen that was laying out for them. And then we talked about what a reaction was, that I just took something from you that has no value. You never saw it before two seconds ago. But now that I have taken it from you, you've attached an emotional worth 
or value to right. it. So that is the basis of reactance theory. It's fascinating. But Kimmel says that for these perpetrators, becoming part of these groups is an unconscious way to retrieve their masculinity or whatever their particular personal view of masculinity is. Certainly a lot of that boils down again to the idea that power, influence, and entitlement have been taken away from them. Mm. And just as a brief aside, another thing that we've talked about several times here is that our modern day definitions and understanding and idea of quote unquote traditional masculinity is actually a really new phenomenon that didn't exist before the end of World War II. Oh my gosh. So we are we are basing all of our culture on just literally an extension of capitalism and economics that had to happen in order supposedly to restore balance to the workforce when men came home from war. But I'm digressing. <laughs> Let me get back to our main message. The thrust of this message of the white nationalist propaganda is pretty clear in all these respects. It distills down to the idea of join us and you feel like a real man. Join your brothers, your comrades. We have a sacred mission to preserve the white race. And this is very strong in the Proud Boy movement, although Proud Boys say that they don't have race like they okay. or they have people that are of different racial backgrounds, but tend to identify as white. So in circling back to these themes of entitlement and personal entitlement, academic terms, entitlement is an individual's belief or the perception that they inherently deserve special treatment, privileges, rewards, most often in these groups that we've been discussing without necessarily having earned or demonstrated merit for any of these benefits. Entitlement can lead an individual to feel like they are entitled to these advantages, these resources, or just opportunities based on their self-perceived importance of worth rather than objective qualifications or achievements. And again, many times this entitlement is unconscious until brought to the surface by inflammatory rhetoric of, hey, you know what? This other is taking this away from you. Yeah. So like the idea again of this is a finite pie with pieces to be given away. And then, oh, you're left with nothing. But is that really true yeah. when we're talking about these abstract topics? I remember during the previous administration here in the country, they were interviewing a very strident supporter. And her comment was, well, he's not hurting the people that he should be hurting, you know, which is such a, such an interesting take on it. It's not that he's taking away my benefits to give them to somebody else. It's more of like, no, these people should be punished. Jeez. Very, very, you know, mental gymnastics, as we say all the yeah. time. So in order to defend those mental gymnastics, that sense of entitlement, this individual experiences a belief in their superiority and an exaggerated sense of self-importance. So in addition to the profile factors that Dr. Kimmel was describing previously, he also determined additional factors that basically feed the fire. And those individuals have several things going on. They are downwardly mobile in society, which means that the trajectory of where they've been, no matter where their parents are, either they by choice or by situation, their opportunities are not as prolific or open mm -hmm. to them or accessible, or they're not motivated to pursue higher. So they are downwardly mobile. And that they could be also, due to circumstance, right? Like things could change absolutely. and shift and not saying that that's just inward from them. And I, I think we'll see that in our big case example here too. Absolutely. A, a good example of this is when you have an area of the U.S. where the entire economy has been built around one particular uh, tradecraft. Uh, yeah. Yes. So whether it's mining or whether it's, you know, an area of the country that has like four prisons yeah. and then those four prisons close or three of them close 
and then everyone that was associated with supporting themselves and their community, right. then that's gone, right? So also besides being what we call downwardly mobile, there's also on the, the lesser end of economic uh, ability within what is left of the middle class, which is not much. Great way to put it, yeah. And then individuals who are also unable to process the impact of huge economic issues. I thought this was like really tactfully put by Dr. Kimmel. If you don't understand the big picture, then it is easier to personalize it and point a finger at the other. So if you have a bigger picture of like, this is just happening to me, this is happening to a lot of people and there are other things at play. And it plays into helplessness. I mean, you just feel like, what can I do to change this situation? Like so many people do when they're in dire straits when it comes to finances, but gosh, that could be really dangerous fuel to how can I gain the power back? Right. Exactly. You know, and just briefly lower and middle-class economies are just not working Mm -hmm. in the way that they used to. We had this incredible boom after World War II, and that just doesn't really exist right now for a number of reasons. You know, no one person really is responsible for that, but it's a, a phenomenon that needs to be shifted. There's no ability for people to support themselves or a family on a regular 40 hour work week at minimum wage or above. People forget that even boomers, you know, people that are in my generation will get so pissed off about college students and bitching about living expenses. And well, in my day, and it's like, well, dude, in your day, like what, who is it? Talk about Ted Bundy. That part that would blow us away about his study is that he supported himself through law school by working part-time at a gas station during the summer that (laughs) paid for his college tuition, right? Yeah. That is completely gone. Yeah. Yeah. No more. So the future, sorry Sorry for, for getting off on that, but no, I mean, thank you for a recap of all that, because I think we can talk about what happens. We can break down typologies. We can talk about the cases, but really it's like, okay, well, what is out there to explain this? And I know this is just Dr. Kimmel's research is really saturated in white supremacy movements as we've covered in like the overlap of the manosphere yep. and other to act out in violent ways that, you know, just kind of pop up on the radar and like, no one would have ever known with this person. It gives us an idea of this, like what's boiling under the surface, because I think this can be extrapolated to other groups. Yeah. But you make a really good point is that with all of his wonderful observations and his research and his tenets that we have to be careful of being aware that they're also going to be outliers. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. As with anything. So let's get into our our big example here of our criminal case. We're just going to cover one since we gave you so many little you know, examples as we went through those categories of typologies, but we would be remiss if we did not talk about the Oklahoma City bombing. I think I gave some care and consideration to whether or not we were going to use Timothy Vick and McVeigh's name. Typically, everyone knows we don't like to do that. This is so notorious that it would almost feel a little bit silly if we did not. <laughs> that, that's just being precocious um, if we yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to dive way more into his background, the evolution of how he got to the point that he got to rather than the event. So that's that's how we're going to sort of proceed moving forward here. So on April 19th, 1995, at precisely 9.02 a.m., a bomb exploded on the site of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. A third of the building had been blown away, showing an open gaping wound from top to bottom. Floors pancaked on top of one another, and it was obvious that there would be devastating casualties. 
The perpetrator of this attack on a symbol of the U.S. government was a homegrown terrorist, Timothy McVeigh. So much of our information on Timothy McVeigh comes from the book American Terrorist, Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City Bombing. And that was written by Lou Michael and Dan Herbeck, with whom McVeigh actually cooperated with to lend to this book. So there's a lot of quotes that they get from him that are straight from his mouth. Take it as you will, right? But they did their due diligence and their research to really reach out to people in his life to cooperate what he was saying as much as possible. So we'll have that in our show notes and of course on our website on our recommended reading list. So you can find that. And certainly the benefit of something that has happened so recently in history through the words of the perpetrator actually just illuminates a lot of what I talked about in those foundational tenets. So McVeigh grew up in Pendleton, New York, which is a suburb right outside the city of Buffalo. His dad worked in the local Harrison radiator plant while his mom worked at a travel agency. McVeigh had two siblings, which were both girls. When the family finally was split up by the parents' divorce, they told the children that they could choose with whom to live. Hmm. Mm. Not so great. Tim blamed his mom for breaking up the family and decided to stay with his father, whose long work hours left him on his own much of the time. Just going to say already, that is, uh, uh, for some people that don't have any other choice, I get it. Like it it happens. However, this is not an optimal situation, taking custody of a child and then leaving them on their own. That just is not a good choice. Well, and what, as a a family systems therapist, what do you have to say about parents who kind of put it on their minor children to choose who they want to live with. Well, it's too much of a responsibility to make that decision. Uh, that's that, that's overwhelming. Children are caught in a situation where they don't want to displease one of the parents or maybe yeah. who knows how, how they all felt about each of these parents, but that's way too big of a decision. That's why these things, and certainly in today's world, we need to take into consideration who would be the best parent for this mm-hmm. and who's going to be able to support support the needs of the child. You know, immediately when I was going over these points that you had put together for us, I immediately thought of our young man with the diagnosis of affluenza, right? So he had just sort of been, had a much of money thrown at him and left to his own devices while his parents moved away. Yeah. So that's not a good place for a young man to be. But he's quoted as saying is, I can't attribute anything I am now to any lack of my parents' presence in the home. But I do say that I have very few memories of interactions with my parents. So literally, dude, you are contradicting yourself right there. (laughs) Yes. If you don't have a lot of memories of childhood or if everything seems like a blur or completely neutral, there's something going on that you probably need to examine. Absolutely. Because then as a teenager, McVeigh developed two passions, computers Okay, take it. And guns. So the early moments of the internet were happening at just the right time to grab his attention. And he became somewhat of an amateur hacker. I mean, actually hacked into some government databases. I don't know if that was cooperated. So I could see him sort of bragging about that, but I don't Mm -hmm, know how true it is, but it is documented somewhere. And his computer skills earned him accolades at school. But after a 
brief stint at a local community college, he dropped out. And around this time, he was obsessively starting to read about survivalism and Second Amendment issues. And he started acquiring firearms at that point. He acquired several guns and went full on prepper mode. I mean, this is, again, a while back, but setting up a generator, a store of canned food. I mean, you've seen those videos, I'm sure, of you know these families that literally their basement looks like a Costco. That's what he had, the store of canned food and water all in his basement so he could be self-sufficient in case of an emergency, which nothing wrong with that, but I definitely well, don't have a whole store. <laughs> well, I mean, I think they're referring to his, you know, his choice of, of canned goods. And look, we live in California. We live in Southern California yeah. where all of us are aware, or you're supposed to be made aware that a major earthquake could knock out services for many days, depending yeah. on where you live. So all of us out here, I mean, I, we certainly do. I'm not going to mm -hmm. tell you where we've stored all our food so you don't come steal it. <gasps> but we have, you know, and by the way, canned foods stay perfectly good for a very, very long time. So it's a good investment if you live in an area. But I digress. Yeah. yeah. He yeah, went over the top. He was like, had his own little, like you said, a little mini Costco down there. Yeah. And again, uh, like all kidding aside, I mean, there is nothing wrong with being prepared for something. It's then when you start uncovering what else is going on underneath and how this starts off as like, okay, like this is a, a you know, guy that's just kind of getting ready for an emergency and then where that ends up evolving to. So part of that would be that, you know, his reading library included the Turner Diaries, which is a racist novel popular in neo-Nazi and militia circles about an angry man who blows up the FBI building in Washington. And this is a very popular book on the bookshelves of wannabe domestic terrorists in this country, all the militia sort of subsection groups we've talked about. It's a problem. Yeah, it's a really great point. We really haven't had the opportunity or we haven't taken the opportunity to look at the Turner Diaries and its author, but we really should. I've often described it as like the Hunger Games for white supremacists oh, because gosh, it has yeah. the, the language in it is very sort of not well written. It's kind of purple prose mm -hmm. and almost like despite its terrible racist overtones, it's written almost like a young adult novel because it's just so outlandish with the Jeez. situation. But for people who are not critical thinkers, you can read it. And you, if you are already scared and you already externalize all of the blame for anything that's happening in your life to people of other backgrounds, then the Turner Diaries can really pull you in. Yeah. It's like, there's something very powerful about holding a published book that kind of echoes what you're already thinking and feeling. what your experience is. And then like you were saying, is this the subject of the Turner Diaries is about a man who is the hero. He takes action in a mm, big way, there you go. which then gives us more insight into if that's a motivating factor for these people. It's like, oh, so you're engaging in your own LARPing yes. or yes. fan fiction of something that somebody's written that's fan I mean it's just kind of crazy like it I'm going to go LARP this thing that a fictional book has said why I I'm going to go do that there's such grandiosity uh -huh. and expansiveness of affect about that of like you that's what we talk about in diagnostic terms of like I'm special yep. I'm the one that's going to going to be the one that takes us to the next level. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those markers on the pathway to violence is realizing like you are the chosen one, essentially not in any like biblical sense, but like the chosen one to carry this out.
Right. That's that's a big turn in the, the psychology. So after leaving his short stint in college, McVeigh found work as a security guard, but really spent all of his free time kind of obsessing and focusing on survivalism. He even purchased a parcel of land in Western New York that he would visit when he could. He was still living really at home with his dad doing the security work, but he didn't have any means to really do anything with it after purchasing it. He couldn't really develop it. So it was then that he announces to his dad that he is joining the army. And this actually was a decent place for McVeigh. I mean, he thrived in this disciplined lifestyle of the military. He impressed his peers as the guy that's like the epitome of infantry. They would say, you know, he was the extremist, the like, follow me kind of guy. Like, I will take you through, you know, whatever obstacle we're going to go through and you can trust me. But it wasn't just his attitude. I mean, his scores as an infantry recruit were stellar. He was assigned to Fort Riley in Kansas and he earned an unprecedented perfect score as a gunner in an armed transport vehicle, which led to him basically being invited to try out for special forces. So they saw what his, where his abilities were, probably where his mindset was and was like, hmm, we want, we want to shoulder tap you to, to try out. Yeah. I mean, with all due respect, that's an incredibly high achievement. Yeah. For him to have that kind of score. And it's interesting how this next part of his experience really kind of punched me in the gut mm -hmm. because it pulls me in. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a thing that really pulls me in. Like, I have incredible respect for people who pursue the military as for anything, if they need to do it for financial reasons, it's still taking a big chance on finances. I mean, it's on, on your self-preservation for finances. Some people, sure. it's their only choice and they they do it because they have to do it. And there are others that were born into a military family or they're inspired to do it. All of that is good stuff. But McVeigh later said that his approach was a reaction to the over-the-top training tactics in boot camp that ironically for him, he says espoused violence. So he's quoted as saying 20 times a day it would be blood makes the grass grow, kill, kill, kill. You would be screaming that until your throat was raw. And if somebody put a video camera on that, they would think it was a bunch of sickos. Color me surprised that I find something that I identify, I, I kind of agree with. I mean, it's yeah, part yeah. of, I, I understand that paramilitary organizations do go through a basic of we have to break down part of your foundation so that we replace it or supplant it or supplement it with what your chosen mission is now that you are part of our organization. Right. So you have to break down some and build it back up. But there are many critics of this type because it's really, it's not done to this extent in other countries. Like the military in other countries does not train with this sort of like this sort of violent rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. To this extent, what, I would say. Yeah. What he sort of takes that as and decides to like, it, is he saying I didn't like that? And so I just sort of immersed myself in being the best soldier I was going to be. However, you know, focusing on my firearms precision or what have you. But I think it's the first little flavor we start to get of him saying, mm, I'm not going to sort of be brainwashed by this this government tactic to lump me in with a group of people to be who they want me to be necessarily. So, well, prior to him being able to give special forces a try, 
Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and he was deployed to the Persian Gulf with thousands of other soldiers. And when Allied generals finally decided to go on the offensive, McVeigh was put in a very dangerous assignment. His team spearheaded the convoy of vehicles that led the way for those first tanks and would likely be drawing the first enemy fire. So when he spoke about this event, McVeigh said, quote, he sent us in as the sacrificial lamb. It happened to be my vehicle. That's one of the decisions a military commander has to make without regard for life. He decided that the nine lives in the Bradley are worth doing it this way, end quote. So he and his team survived that night. And on the second day of conflict, McVeigh's shooting skills were put to the test and he passed with flying colors. He made a shot that was so difficult that he was actually awarded several medals for it later, where from a distance of nearly 2,000 yards, McVeigh hit an Iraqi soldier who was manning a machine gun nest so accurately and just took him down immediately that he probably saved a lot of lives, American soldiers' lives. So despite the fact that this individual perpetrated a, a horrific act this is sort of a seminal moment in talking about U.S. military tactics that has really grown in enormity to today's military that now uses drones that can kill people with that type of accuracy from literally miles away True. from from the upper atmosphere. You know, that's just something that our soldiers are struggling with because it's depersonalized mm -hmm. and it's bringing up a lot of issues and there's a lot of trauma associated with that type of damage. But over time, McVeigh even went back and reflected on that particular incident, that really sort of impossible task where he took out that soldier and knowing that he saved many lives in that action, he still was challenged because he said of the incident, quote, his head just disappeared. I saw everything above the shoulders disappear like in a red mist, close quote. Once he later discovered that many of the Iraqi soldiers did not want to fight and were equipped with vastly inferior weaponry, that experience really shook him up. He then wrote in a letter to a friend back home, Saddam, if he ever showed up, chicken shit bastard, because of him, I killed a man who didn't want to fight us, but was forced to. Yeah, so McVeigh's aunt had told the New York Times in a subsequent interview that she worded it that when he came back, he seemed broken. And she said that when they talked about it, he talked about how terrible it was there, how he was on the front line, had seen death, had caused death. And so now we're, we're dealing with, you know, if we kind of tick these things up, right? Like a man that really couldn't find his way in the world. You're seeing that he's sort of tilting towards some ideologies that could be dangerous. He's amassing weapons. And now we have trauma, like major combat trauma, at least being exposed to traumatic incidents. I can't say that, you know, he necessarily had a extended reaction that would be something that we would diagnose as post-traumatic stress disorder, but he's dealing with some demons here. And although the combat experience impacted him just as it had impacted so many other service members with the conflictual feelings around their mission, their role, their morals, etc., he maintained a pretty patriotic attitude after he returned home. He attempted to pass the special forces test again when he came back, but he was left so out of shape and so drained after his deployment that he actually couldn't pass it at that point. So he returns to Fort Riley in Kansas, where he was originally stationed, but now he's disappointed and he's bitter. Not good. No. Because at this time, he began to isolate from his fellow soldiers and he turned 
even more inward. And on top of that, there was another emerging side of his personality that he nurtured. I did not know there was a trial membership in the KKK. I'm not sure how that works, but I guess it makes sense. They want to give you an out. However, McVeigh chose not to follow through because he found the Klan too focused on issues of race and not enough on Second Amendment rights. So he was very discerning in his type of racism and his belief in Second Amendment rights. Less than a year after he returned from war, McVeigh dropped out of the army telling his commanding officer, I just feel I need to leave. So now we have a man, again, likely struggling with inner demons from the war, no real employment history, no college degree, not to mention the country was in a recession at this time. So we're starting to lean towards some of those things that Dr. Kimmel was talking about, looking at financial stability and where these individuals fall as far as becoming downwardly mobile in society. And it was a really difficult period for McVeigh. And I think a a perfect cocktail of life issues to start fanning these flames of anger and grievances. So he settles for another security guard position that he said he found totally boring and tedious. And his criticism of the government also became more intense around this time. He often talked politics with his sister and his coworkers, and he was stepping that up a level and firing off several anger-fueled letters to local papers. So I have an example of a letter that he wrote to the Lockport Union Sun and Journal. And it says, quote, the American dream of the middle class has all but disappeared, substituted with people struggling just to buy next week's groceries. Heaven forbid the car breaks down. At what point when the world has seen communism falter as an imperfect system to manage people, democracy seems heading down the same road. No one is seeing the big picture. Maybe we have to combine ideologies to achieve the perfect utopian government. Remember, government-sponsored healthcare was a communist idea. Should only the rich be allowed to live longer? Does that say that because a person is poor, he's a lesser human being and doesn't deserve to live as long because he doesn't wear a tie to work? America is in serious decline. We have no proverbial tea to dump. Should we instead sink a ship of Japanese imports? Is a civil war imminent? Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. Hmm. Yeah. Not just keeping these in his head or with his little social circle anymore. He's now writing letters. Right. And the thing that makes it complex is that I, sounds weird. I want to give him credit for the idea of a big picture. And he Mm. makes some very salient points. But again, it's about someone who has perceived themselves completely at the at the effect of external forces, which are substantial. And he's not talking about something that doesn't exist. But I I doubt I have doubts about whether his idea of what the big picture is, Mm. is congruent with what a lot of what the majority think the big picture is. But throughout all of these political writings and musings, McVeigh focused on primarily these perceived threats or what he perceived to be threats of the right to bear arms. He expressed exceptional levels of anger at the incident of the government siege at Randy Weaver's cabin in Ruby Ridge, Montana in 1992, which was a huge clusterfuck of a situation. So soon after he took to the open road, the incident Waco occurred between the ATF and the Branch Davidians. And that only enraged him further. So he dropped his plans and just changed course and headed right to Waco, where he sold bumper stickers supporting the Davidians for a few days. Interesting mental gymnastics there. So you're supporting an active child molester and cult leader. Like, wow. 
Yeah, okay. I don't. I don't know if we knew all of that before, but <laughs> that's no, that's true. Maybe he, he didn't, but still, anybody that's you know, it, it would seem at the most base level, if you're endangering your congregation, then oh, of course, right? Of course. But thank you for that correction. I appreciate that, <laughs> Doctor Shiloh. That's what I'm here for. Right. So the bumper stickers only last a couple of days. He leaves town, and then he begins literally two years of roaming America. That would take him through at least 40 different states. Mm -hmm. Already, I'm seeing as an observer some problematic issues. While I would love to take a lot of time and go on a road trip and just explore, I would also be in constant contact with almost everyone I know because yeah, I'm a social animal. I would think that the level of personal isolation that someone with his ideology and access to the internet has at that time, that's probably not a good combination. But I mean, during this period, he did spend some time living with two friends from the army. Unfortunately, they shared his political views, right? So now we've got this in real life echo chamber that starts to form. Michael Fortier, who lived in Arizona, and Terry Nichols, who owned a farm in Michigan, were the two friends. McVeigh also spent time on the gun show circuit selling copies of, what do you think, what what book did he sell? The Turner Diaries? The Turner, Di Turner Diaries. I guess he just got in touch with the author and purchased them wholesale and started selling <laughs> I them. I don't know. But he I was also- <laughs> Maybe he made his own bootleg yeah, copies. Could have been. But he also sold other Second Amendment paraphernalia of which there's just an explosion in the market at that time of T-shirts, of gun modifiers, all sorts of things. And he really felt comfortable in, in his element in these circles. He continued to remain skeptical of some of the most extreme ideas being talked about. But overall, he felt accepted in these conversations about American liberty. So McVeigh was actually with his friend Terry Nichols when the ATF and the FBI eventually raided the Branch Davidian compound. So you remember, I mean, that was over so many days and weeks that that was unfolding. And upon finding out that about 80 members of the cult died in the fire, Nichols reports that McVeigh openly wept standing there in his living room watching this unfold on television. And this sadness turned into more fuel for his anger. And as an outward symbol of that disdain for federal law enforcement agencies, he, as part of his paraphernalia that he's selling on the gun show circuit, he starts selling these baseball caps that say ATF on them, like an ATF member would wear, but it had, it looked like it had bullet holes in it. So essentially wow. symbolizing advocating for the murder of law enforcement officers. And McVeigh's journey to find his role in this world led to even more concerning places. He became more interested in conspiracy theories. Great. Even breaking into Area 51 to find out for himself what the government was hiding. I'm sure that went over well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he found somewhat of a mentor in a man named Walter Mac McCarty, who was a 72-year-old former Marine who shared these political views. And McVeigh traveled to McCarty's home in Arizona to have these long conversations about Waco, about Randy Weaver and the federal government and the Second Amendment. And the authors of the book, American Terrorists, really looked into McCarty and ended up describing him as a right-wing survivalist with this paramilitary type philosophy about him. So again, you know, just like finding a book in, you know, a, a hard copy of something that is going to make your perceptions feel more real and validated. Here he's finding this older gentleman that is someone who's former military, who he respects, that also is 
becoming part of his echo chamber. So at this point, McVeigh begins experiencing paranoia and what we probably assert is somewhat delusional thinking. He begins to say that undercover agents were approaching him at gun shows, which totally could have been true, totally right? Totally could, yeah. When Congress passed the assault weapons ban in the fall of 1994, he became convinced that more Waco-like raids were just inevitable and that he was likely a target. Mm. So maybe some functional paranoia, given the fact that he has been engaging in this kind of behavior and has made a name for himself. So yeah. maybe it's not so much delusional as functional paranoia. But again, isolation starts and trauma. Clearly, the guy was traumatized by some of the actions that he had taken. But his response to this was to, you guessed it, in the same way he was storing canned beans, he starts stockpiling weapons and supplies at that small home in Kingman, Arizona, where he had settled. I wonder if he moved all of his canned goods from the other place. Like did you, when you're going on your road trip do you just pack up all your canned goods i don't know i don't know after two years maybe they expired so oh cans last forever in the fall of 1994 he told friends that he was moving to the action phase of his conflict with the federal government that's pretty Eesh. that's not leakage that's like opening the floodgates that oh is yeah information from a fire hose right yep. there so mcveigh informed nichols and fortier of his intentions and the investigation proved that nichols helped him purchase the bomb making materials although mcveigh has consistently claimed that nobody else was involved nichols also remained silent when offered a chance at lenience by giving up any other conspirators so they had their own little triumvirate mm -hmm. of masculine toxicity and this is what it led to yes so on that tragic morning of april in 1995, McVeigh parked a truck packed with 5,000 pounds of explosives in front of the building where 14 federal agencies had offices. Also located in that building was a child daycare center for government workers and their families. And the human toll was absolutely devastating. 168 souls were lost, including 19 mm. children with several hundred more injured. And this was the worst act of homegrown terrorism in the nation's history. Again, you know, we're not focusing too much on the attack. I'm going to put up a website that is from the Memorial Museum of the Oklahoma City bombing that is a beautiful website going through every victim, photographs, and what they've done to memorialize these people that were lost. They also have a beautiful memorial there at the site that is a chair for every single person that was lost. You know, this being a workplace and kind of thinking of people just starting their morning and being at their desks and in their cubicles. It's very, very haunting to look at and see, but I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So you can take a look at it. And I love this quote from a CNN article that recapped the trial. They say, quote, he gave a good deal of thought to the plan. Though his denial of knowing that a daycare center was located in the Murrah building is plausible, McVeigh had many months to consider the number of innocent people that would perish in the blast. Driven equally by personal desperation and a perceived righteousness, he proceeded anyway. So, yeah, afterwards, he had, you know, claimed that he didn't know that there was a daycare center. He wasn't trying to kill children. But at that point, it's like, it doesn't matter what you're saying with the kind of devastation that, you know, 5,000 pounds of explosives is going to cause. It, it doesn't matter. I think that there's a good point that you make that it is plausible that he did not know there was a daycare. I would almost want to assume that someone who plans so well and is trained to plan so well would have knowledge of everybody that's going to be in that building. Yep. Agreed. Then again, we're talking about someone who is unraveling. Mm -hmm. He is clearly unraveling, you know, and it really extends back to, you know, he came out being this high level soldier and should have gone right into special forces. 
Yeah. But he didn't. He was falling apart. And I think that this is part of the progression of him falling apart. And I would go so far as to say that sort of the innate narcissism that comes with people who embrace this ideology, that if it is true that he did not know that there was a daycare there, that the level of narcissistic wounding to him in this revelation, in this realization of what he's done would have been absolutely devastating, which me, which is why I think he did not fight the ultimate uh-huh. ruling on his uh-huh. trial. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. So as rescue efforts were underway for just days, the FBI was doing its very thorough investigation at, again, what you described earlier as really a horrific site. And it, I mean, the, the pictures even to this day just punch you in the gut. It's yeah. literally, it's like something from a science fiction movie. It really is. Just yeah, the I mean, that, chunk of the building gone. And that one photo of that firefighter holding that little baby. I mean, it's just like burned into my mind for Absolutely. all these years. On April 20th, the rear axle of the Ryder rental truck was located at the bombing site, which yielded a vehicle identification number that was traced to a body shop in Junction City, Kansas. Then employees at the shop helped FBI put together a composite drawing of the man who had rented that van. FBI agents hit the streets, showing the drawing around town, and local hotel employees gave him the name of a man who had registered in previous days and who matched the composite. It was Timothy McVeigh. But guess what? When they ran his name, the FBI learned he was already in custody. He had been pulled over about 80 miles north of Oklahoma City by an Oklahoma state trooper who noticed a missing license plate on his yellow Mercury marquee. McVeigh had a concealed weapon and was arrested. It was just 90 minutes after the bombing, and he still had earplugs in from being close enough to witness the blast before driving off. Yeah, that's one of the ways that they put together that he stuck around to watch it happen, because why put earplugs in? If you know that's going to happen, which is a whole other thing besides like we can go back and forth Uh about his manifesto, about what his belief system was. Is it grandiose? Is it narcissistic? Is all this? That's a big one. Mm -hmm. Sitting there to witness your destruction takes it to a completely different diagnostic place. Yeah. So McVeigh's plan was that the bombing would make him a martyr for the right wing fringe. He thought that his terrible act would serve as sort of a call to arms for Americans with similar political beliefs. And he couldn't have been more wrong because even the most extreme militia groups joined the chorus of condemnation coming from the rest of America in the aftermath of the bombing. So instead, he earned the title of the most hated man in America. And I remember like he's doing his perp walk and people are yelling baby killer at him. And he was quoted as saying when he was walking out, you know, there were just crowds around and he was scanning the crowds looking for somebody. He thought he was going to be shot and killed. He thought it was going to be, you know, kind of a Jack Ruby moment or something like that. And yeah, it's just his, his plan didn't turn out the way it had in his mind. So in August of 1995, McVeigh and Nichols were both charged with the same 11 federal crimes, which were conspiring to use a weapon of mass destruction to kill people and destroy federal property, using a weapon of mass destruction that caused death and injury, the malicious destruction of federal property by explosives, and eight counts of first-degree murder of federal law enforcement officers. A federal jury found McVeigh guilty of all counts on June 2nd, 1997, 
He was executed on June 11th, 2001. A different jury found Nichols guilty of conspiracy and eight counts of manslaughter on December 23rd, 1997. He was sentenced to life in prison. Fortier testified against McVeigh and was sentenced to 12 years in prison for failing to report the planned attack and for lying to the FBI. So the investigation turned out to be one of the most exhaustive in FBI history. And by the time it was over, the Bureau had conducted more than 28,000 interviews, followed some 43,000 investigative leads, amassed three and a half times of evidence and reviewed nearly a billion pieces of information. Whoa. They were all hands on deck for this. And that was in a case where it was wrapped up pretty quickly in the sense like they found their guy with some just some good work, but just it gives you an idea of just the massive right, you know, nature of the destruction. Well, certainly some good work, but let's just say, I mean, what could have happened if he had not been pulled over by that trooper? I don't know. You know, could he have ditched the car? Could he have gone and disappeared? What, yeah. what would have been interesting if he had disappeared into the community or he had gone to the woods and he's just listening to the radio and then finds out that whoever did this is the most hated man in America oh. and is a baby killer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's Eric, so- Eric Rudolph ran off into the woods. He was a survivalist. I mean, that guy was on the run for quite a while with his skills out there. So I don't know. And at the end, it's like guns did him in. He had that illegal concealed weapon on him. And that's what he got arrested for. So before we wrap up here, we just want to touch on where this overlaps with now our several episodes talking about incels and incel ideology. This is usually the hot topic of debate after a mass casualty incident that has been perpetrated by a self-proclaimed incel or what we find out later in their writings is likely their ideologies, which again, go back and listen to our episodes to really get the hard numbers on how infrequent that has been over the last several years. But let me give you a case study to ponder in terms of are incels considered domestic terrorists? So in March 2020 in Hillsborough, Ohio, a 20-year-old got into an argument with his mother with whom he was living and retreated into his room and she hears him rack around into a firearm. So she goes into her room to hide. She calls the police. And I actually talked to the case agent on this one because when I first looked into it, I was studying it from a barricaded suspect perspective and a crisis negotiation perspective, which it didn't turn out to be a good lead in that because (laughs) police get there pretty quickly. Mom's able to escape and just negotiation 101, they ask him to come out and he comes out. So there wasn't really a barricade necessarily, um, but it's, it's interesting to look at what Ohio did with this case legally. Right. So on his arrest, he admitted to having an AR-15 and body armor, but he denied having a pistol. But when they search his room, they find a semi-automatic handgun and a document with a plot to murder women at a specific sorority house at Ohio State University. These writings dated back to 2019. One of the quotes is entitled, A Hideous Symphony. I am already set to go into the U.S. Army. This training will be for the attainment of one reality, the death of what I have been deprived of most, but also cherish and fantasize at the opportunity of having, but has been neglected of women. I will slaughter out of hatred, jealousy, and revenge. I will take away the power of life that they withhold from me by showing there is more than just happiness and fulfillment. There is all-encompassing death, the great equalizer. So he wrote another document entitled Isolated. And a quote from that says, if you're reading this, I've done something horrible. Somehow you've come across the writings of the deluded and homicidal, not an easy task. And for that, I congratulate you for your curiosity and willingness to delve into such dark topics. 
Signed, your hopeful friend and murderer. It always blows me away of how they sort of project what the person reading this is going to think. It's like, oh, thank you for congratulating me for exactly reading again, this in my podcast. Again, just expansive, expansiveness, grandiosity. Yeah. A feeling of, you know, that there's not only are they maligned, but they're still special. Yeah, exactly. So the investigation revealed that the perpetrator conducted surveillance of the university and did a lot of online research on sororities. And he was also quite active on incel forums. It turns out in preparing for this attack, he had purchased tactical gloves, a bulletproof vest, a hoodie bearing the word revenge across the front, cargo pants, a Bowie knife, a skull face mask, and several magazines for his firearms. He had actually named a date for his proposed mass shooting, which was May 23rd, 2020, which would have been just two months after this encounter with police at his home, which was essentially a domestic incident with his mom in which this was all revealed. So later investigation also revealed that he had actually gone to a university campus and engaged in what you and I would call rehearsal behaviors, homicidal rehearsal behaviors by filling a water gun with orange juice. And then he was spraying women with it. This is so creepy in hindsight. And he said that, you know, this really gave him a sense of power and he felt spiritually connected to the saint that day, referring to the Isla Vista shooter, that he was sort of walking in his ghostly shoes of attacking sorority women. And he knew what was to come with the real attack down the line. So if we apply the definitions of domestic terrorism to this case, let's see what we think about one, if this applies, because it's a, it's a good little subsection of an example of someone with incel ideology. And then again, we'll get to kind of what ended up happening with this case. So Dr. Scott, can you remind us of the bullet points of definition of domestic terrorism? Sure. Activities involving acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state that are appearing to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, influence the policy of government by intimidation or coercion, or affect the conduct of the government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occurs primarily within the jurisdiction of the U.S. So out of this consideration about where incels fit when it comes to violence, usually against women, a new typology of extremism, not terrorism, is now born. Misogynistic extremism. Very important new term to be aware of if you're interested in this milieu. This was coined by the Department of Homeland Security Secret Service National Threat Assessment Center and generally refers to a gender-based ideology, sometimes referred to as male supremacy. So at this point, most government agencies are not leaning towards labeling the incel movement as a terrorist organization, understandably, with the understanding that those who act out violently are very few and very far between, and because also it lacks organization. Therefore, it fits much more neatly as an extreme belief rather than terrorist acts. Yeah. And I, I think the, you know, as you read off kind of that, those bullet points again for criteria, it feels like they're trying to make a statement so society will change, not necessarily that they're trying to coerce the government. I mean, I know there's been talk of like, you know, the government like forced issue girlfriends, yeah, and yeah. all girlfriends and things like that, but it, it just doesn't feel like it fits, which thank goodness now we've right. found this other other category to put it in, in which we're not labeling a whole bunch of people that are not violent as terrorists. So the young man in the Ohio plot on 
the attack at the university was federally prosecuted, which I think is really, really smart. And he was prosecuted for a hate crime. So they put that as a threat against the women at Ohio State University under the Shepherd Bird Act, which had expanded the scope of hate crime to include attacks motivated by gender gender identity and sexual orientation, whether or not that's actual or perceived. He also was charged with unlawful possession of a machine gun. And that's why it actually got prosecuted federally because the machine gun and some of the other guns he had were illegally modified. So the ATF got involved and then you have this hate crime and he pled guilty last year. So some success, which yes. is is good to know that this was nipped in the bud before it could become another Isla Vista incident. Absolutely. So there's some fantastic documentaries and based on true event films, as we kind of shift into the last section here, where we talk about the overlap or the nexus between entertainment. One of them that we've talked about extensively is the Unabomber in his own words, which is a documentary. And then the fictionalized version, which I think was very enjoyable and well Same. done, Manhunt, Unabomber, very well acted. You know, of course, Ted Kaczynski is, is portrayed as almost, almost Hannibal Lecter in the way that he's smooth and and a good-looking actor, quite different yeah. from the Ted Kaczynski. That, but it made for very interesting television and covered a lot of the really salient points of Kaczynski's mm -hmm. ideologies. Then the Richard Jewell movie, it was fictionalized, Manhunt, Deadly Games, fictionalized. Richard Jewell, I think we've referred to him on several different episodes. That was a yeah. really, the Atlanta bombings was another just clusterfuck of right. misidentified and just really badly done. And then also fascinating one, which we are going to be circling back around to this month as our documentary review, the anthrax attacks. Very fascinating story. Surprising that it hasn't been talked about more since there uh -huh. was some powder recently that was discovered at the White House. Yes. That was definitely not anthrax. <laughs> yeah. What a what a wild time. It, it's been really interesting to go back and look at those attacks. And we'll talk about that more in our last episode of this month. But yeah, please go check those out, either looking at the Unabomber case, looking at the Atlanta Olympic bombings or the anthrax attacks. You know, in closing, I think back to, we can really get sort of sidetracked with all these horrible things that have happened over the years. But every single day I get notices through some of the email lists that I'm privy to that connect me to federal and state terrorism task forces. And I can tell you literally every single day in this country, plans are thwarted and law enforcement is doing incredible work. You know, it, it's almost scary to read because you go, gosh, how are the, like, what if one of these slipped through the cracks? It could be the next thing. Yeah, it's do happen, but it's, it, you're talking about yeah. something very important. The number of things that the public will never know about because it was mm -hmm. prevented. Yeah. And then you don't necessarily publicize that because you don't want to publicize what cracks in the system were utilized by that potential perpetrator. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, it's a nice reminder that what we're doing and, and things that have been put into place since 9-11 are absolutely working, you know, whether it's new entities like Homeland Security or task forces or just educating the public or educating smaller law enforcement agencies of what is important and what isn't. 
yeah, it's it's nice to see the good stuff happening. And you and I are going to a full training on threat assessment tomorrow. So I'm sure we'll yeah. come back with more <laughs> topics and information. And um, people we can interview on our live stream. That'll be wonderful. Yes, we need to do some recruitment. We'll be there together. So, you know, how can they resist both of us asking? Yay. <laughs> Dr. Shiloh, threat assessment and snacks. I can't think of a better way to spend the day. It'll be there awesome. There you go. There you go. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Again, we know it was dense. It wasn't as long as I thought it was going to be, but a lot of information and we hope you continue to be interested in some of these other fringe areas to where law enforcement and psychology overlap. And with that, thank you for 150 episodes of being my partner in this, Dr. Scott. Thank you. I like, thank you. I, that's a, a wonderful way to phrase that. And I just, I, I certainly could not have done this alone. And I can't imagine having done it with anybody else because you're, when, when the energy is flagging in this decrepit old body, you are the <laughs> one that, that, that perks me back up. So Aww. thank you. It's a, it's a great relationship. So it's thank you for letting me be part of it. A good, good journey thus far. Well, with that, everyone, we will catch you next time on LA not so confidential. Bye guys. Bye folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.